Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the <laughs> uh, peace plan devised by the U.S. and Israel with absolutely no input from Palestinians, plus some additional discussion of how things are going in Israel and Palestine, uh, not well, and how opinion has begun to shift dramatically within the Democratic Party. Clips today come from Democracy Now!, Counterspin, Deconstructed, Sojourner Truth Radio, and The Real News. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has announced plans to move ahead with annexing about 30 percent of the occupied West Bank after Israel was given the green light to do so by the United States. On Tuesday, President Trump stood by Netanyahu to unveil the Middle East plan that was drafted by Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, without any input from Palestinian leaders. The plan was introduced just hours after Netanyahu was indicted for corruption and in the middle of Trump's impeachment trial in the Senate. Under the plan, Israel will gain sovereignty over large areas of the occupied West Bank, Jerusalem would be under total Israeli control, and all Jewish settlers in the occupied territory would be allowed to remain in their homes. The plan also calls for a four-year settlement freeze and the possible creation of a truncated Palestinian state, but only if a number of conditions are met. This is President Trump. My vision presents a win-win opportunity for both sides, a realistic two-state solution that resolves the risk of Palestinian statehood to Israel's security. Today, Israel has taken a giant step toward peace. Yesterday, Prime Minister Netanyahu informed me that he is willing to endorse the vision as the basis for direct negotiations. And I will say the general also endorsed and very strongly with the Palestinians a historic breakthrough. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu praised the U.S. deal. For too long, far too long. The very heart of the land of Israel, where our patriarchs prayed, our prophets preached, and our kings ruled, has been outrageously branded as illegally occupied territory. Well, today, Mr. President, you are puncturing this big lie. You are recognizing Israel's sovereignty over all the Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria, large and small alike. Palestinians responded to the U.S. plan with protests in the West Bank and Gaza. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas rejected the deal. I say to the partners Trump and Netanyahu, Jerusalem is not for sale. All our rights are not for sale and are not for bargain. And your deal, the conspiracy, will not pass. Let's get right to it. What is most important to know about this quote-unquote deal of the century? 
I think the most important thing to know is that it is not a peace deal at all. I mean, it's not only a misnomer to call it a peace deal, it really is flat out Orwellian because the proposal does not lead to peace for sure. And it's not going to be a deal because the Palestinians will never sign it. It is effectively a proposal to confine Palestinians to tiny areas of land that are completely under the control of the Israeli military. So you basically do not have anything offered to the Palestinians that comes even close to the kind of freedom and independence that Israelis enjoy. And the only people who would support a a proposal like this are people who genuinely see Palestinians as an inferior people who are not deserving of the same rights and freedoms that the rest of us are entitled to. To basically put it in other terms, I think this is an apartheid proposal, and it's going to be a non-starter for obvious reasons. And I think the fact that everybody goes on calling it a peace deal is normalizing to some extent something that is really grotesque and monstrous. Well, apparently the plan says that issues of territory were worked out in the spirit of UN Security Council Resolution 242. What should we know about the land issues here? Resolution 242 basically says that Israel is obligated to withdraw fully from the occupied Palestinian territory. That is all the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. Uh, Keep in mind that this only makes up 22% of the entire land. I mean, basically Israel under Resolution 242 gets to keep 78% of the land. And the problem is that under this proposal, this gigantic Palestinian compromise, basically the, the 1967 borders, which is what your Resolution 242 is based on, gives the Palestinians very little land, and they accepted that as a division. And the Trump administration, and even, frankly, even previous American administrations, start with that division of land as the starting point rather than the end point, which is part of the problem, is that there's always this talk about whether Palestinians are compromising enough and, and all of that. But simply Israel's abiding by international law gives Palestinians only 22% of the land, and that's a massive Palestinian compromise that people should be embracing. So the idea that then carving that 22% into much smaller areas and giving Israel complete, you know, in the case of the West Bank, it's supposed to be bordering Jordan on one side. Under the Trump proposal, the entire Jordan Valley, the eastern part of the West Bank, ends up falling under Israeli control. So Palestinians end up being surrounded by Israel from the north, south, east, and west. By no stretch of the imagination can this be described as a state. And there's clearly a pretty significant deviation from UN Resolution 242 and international law, as made clear by the UN, which basically came out against this deal and said that it's not based on international law. Well, I was disturbed by the New York Times saying the plan offers Palestinians a state with limited sovereignty, besides the noblesse oblige in that offers. What would it even, what does it even mean to say a state with limited sovereignty? I mean, just to underscore, the Palestinians would not control their borders, their air, their water. It's the lands are not contiguous. I'm just not sure why the word state is in that sentence at all. Yeah, it's a really infantilizing and somewhat racist conception of Palestinians that if you give them a plot of land to put a flag on and call it a state, that therefore it's a state. It's, you know, there was a statement made by a spokesperson for Benjamin Netanyahu back in the 90s, David Bar-Ilan, who basically said that Netanyahu's idea has always been to give Palestinians very tiny pieces of land that are completely encircled by Israel. And then he said they can call it the state if they want, or they can call it fried chicken. I don't care. Those were his words. And that effectively is what current American policy is under this administration. Everybody's going along with this idea of this part of land being a make-believe state and treating it like it's real. 
And it really is journalistic negligence to be living in an environment where instead of calling these things out, people go along with a terminology that is handed out by this administration. I really think that Orwell is rolling in his grave looking at all of this. Well, a state it would not be, but there are things that it sounds like, and those things are Bantustans, aren't they? I mean, the South Africa analogy is not inappropriate. No, it is more apt than ever. Frankly, it has been a very systematic move in that direction. The reality on the ground is already apartheid. It is a separate system of uh, laws and rights that are handed out to Israelis and to Palestinians. In the occupied territories, Israeli settlers who are there illegally on Palestinian land get to move freely, get to use roads that Palestinians don't get to use. They're served under a completely different judicial system, under the full Israeli system, whereas Palestinians serve under Israeli military jurisdiction, where there are all kinds of draconian punitive measures against minor crimes. And the point was this whole occupation, the apartheid system that exists under occupation, was supposed to be temporary, and we're supposed to be working in a direction away from that. That has always been the official justification, is that the occupation exists for military necessity, and we just need to work out the details for peace to come about and end it. And now, sort of this entire sham of the peace process has been exposed, that it has been a systematic effort by Israel using the rhetoric of a peace process to make this apartheid more permanent, to create facts on the ground that make it unchangeable. We are looking at a situation where the two-state solution may no longer be possible, and it may be time for a struggle for equal rights between Palestinians and Israelis in the entire land from the river to the sea. Well, the New York Times also said that this plan would not require Israel, quote, to uproot any of the settlements in the West Bank that have provoked Palestinian outrage and alienated much of the world, close quote, and that Netanyahu's declaration that he's pushing for unilateral annexation of the Jordan River Valley and all Jewish settlements in the West Bank, that's what the Washington Post calls the rush to capitalize on the deal, that that is, <laughs> quote, a move that is sure to further inflame the Palestinians, close quote. International law doesn't seem to have much of a role. These things were just told just make Palestinians mad. Yep. As if Palestinian emotions are the only objection to any of this happening, as opposed to the fact that land theft, <laughs> I mean, it's just the basics of international law. The primary reason it exists is to prevent aggression and land theft and countries invading other countries and taking them over. And the fact that this is unfolding and the only concern, as you mentioned, is what Palestinians feel about it, it really is preposterous. We have the entire international order at stake in this case. If we allow, if we create a norm by which countries can just take over other countries, and to the objections of American administration, successive ones, you know, it goes back to Obama and Bush and Clinton. They were all critical of Israeli policy of expanding settlements. They all kept asking Israel to stop. The message is, well, if you just ignore us and build anyway, then we're just going to have to accept the reality. Then this is really encouragement for everybody around the world that wants to take over any piece of territory that might makes right and just go ahead and do your thing. And eventually we'll just have to accept the reality that you created. This is really fundamentally breaking down the entire international order and the basis that we have for international law and the way that we want to organize ourselves as a human civilization on this planet.
What is your reaction, Noura, to these latest Israeli parliamentary election results and this talk of a national unity government between Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud and the blue and white opposition party of his chief rival, uh, retired army general Benny Gantz? I think it's really interesting for most people watching this, that this was even framed as uh, center left versus center right for anybody paying (laughs) any kind of attention. They're basically both in the right and the distinctions between them are minimal. The Likud is the right-wing party that is religious. Blue and white is the right-wing party that is secular. The differences that they have in terms of policy towards Palestinians are absolutely non-existent. Insofar as Netanyahu wants to annex the Jordan Valley, the Blue and White Party explained that that was their idea first and Netanyahu stole it from them. And as far that they are concerned about um, settlements, neither of them, it just didn't even come up in the agenda. It never came up even um, in any of their campaigning as a core issue, which demonstrates that Palestinians, as far as Israelis are concerned, are out of sight, out of mind. And there is no cost to their neglect and there is no cost to their ongoing subjugation. So the difference between them is really nominal, except for what it means as far as optics and the way that Israel wants to identify itself as a liberal settler democracy. I remember what Jesse Jackson used to say in the 1980s about we only have uh, we only have one party in this country, not two Republicans and Republican light. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a very familiar kind of refrain when you look at Israeli politics. And you mentioned the annexation. I mean, that was a fascinating moment in the election campaign where Benjamin Netanyahu says, I'm going to annex the Jordan Valley. And the response from the quote unquote opposition is that's plagiarism. You copied that from <laughs> us. Not that it's illegal or immoral or will end any kind of so-called peace process. Isn't it also ironic that on the day of the Israeli election on Tuesday in the Netherlands, a Dutch court held a hearing about whether a war crimes case against Benny Gant, who might be prime minister of Israel very soon, um, whether he committed war crimes in Gaza when he was in charge of Israeli forces in 2014, and whether that case is admissible in court in the Netherlands under universal jurisdiction principles. Gant has a long history of a alleged war crimes, isn't he? Well, almost all of these Israeli generals, I mean, he was the chief of staff under Netanyahu. And part of his primary campaign tactic was to promise that he would return Gaza to the Stone Age. This is an Israeli society where all parties benefit from describing who will punish and who will subjugate and who will oppress Palestinians the most and the most harsh, harshly. This is what the the nature of the campaign looks like. So there's nothing to be gained by either party in terms of just thinking pure politics of pivoting away from this racist policy and thinking about a future of ending the occupation or far less about actually changing the nature of Israel's racist apartheid uh, regime. Five million Palestinians not voting in this election should tell you everything you need to know about so-called Israeli democracy. Now, supporters of Israel might say, why? Uh, You know, they're not citizens of Israel. Why should they have a right to vote? What do you say to them? There's two things to say to them. On the one hand, it's not just that Israelis are not giving Palestinians the right to vote. Frankly, Palestinians don't care about the right to vote if they had the right to be sovereign and govern themselves. But the fact that they are neither given the right to be sovereign and govern themselves, nor the right to participate in elections, notwithstanding the fact that the Israeli government, whichever government comes on top, will govern every aspect of their lives, indicates how they are therefore under a regime where they can't represent themselves under any capacity. And it's tantamount 
uh, to an apartheid nature. For those who say, well, no, that's not true, but Palestinians have a president and they did have an election 14 years ago. What President Mahmoud Abbas represents is a series of non-contiguous Bantu stands in the West Bank that are not tantamount to a state, that is not tantamount to sovereignty, even for him, even for Abbas, to travel Outside of Palestine, he requires permission and a permit from Israel, which should tell us again the dimension of the lack of sovereignty yep. and the lack of of the right to vote, which is a, a state of limbo that Israel has um, suspended Palestinians in for for fifty two years under the occupation and for seventy two seventy years since its establishment. So let's talk about the A word, apartheid. It drives some supporters of Israel up the wall. They say it's unfair. It's inaccurate. It's a smear. It's anti-Semitic. They say Israel is nothing like apartheid South Africa. Why are they wrong? And also, as a first step, how do you define apartheid? Well, I think those, those two questions are related. This is not an analogy. Just as the Holocaust is not necessarily the only definition of genocide, the Jewish Holocaust is not the only definition of genocide, South African apartheid is not what defines apartheid as a racial uh, structure and regime. Apartheid was defined in the 1973 Convention Against Apartheid, which defined it as a crime against humanity, which enumerated at least six different categories that indicate when a, when a state is actually engaging in that kind of differential treatment based on uh, racial distinction with difference. And so in the case of Palestinians, if they were indeed in their separate territories, living under a military occupation, Occupation, where they simply sought to be free and endured a military occupation, it might not be apt. But the fact that Israelis, that Israeli civilians live um, within the West Bank, they constitute 600,000 settlers, approximately 12% of the West Bank population, who are connected to the interior of Israel proper and who are given all the rights of uh, and are governed by Israeli civil law, while the Palestinians who are proximate to them, who are literally in tw live side by side with them as they do, for example, between Hizma and the four settlements that surround them, who are governed by military law, this is when we're starting to talk about two laws. And then some will, some might, some liberal Zionists will say, well, okay, fine, apartheid exists in the West Bank, but you can't say that about Israel, except the same conditions exist within Israel, except under a different civil law regime. But they have the right to vote, defenders of Israel would say. Look, hold on, 1.5 million Palestinians, they say they can vote. Black Africans could not vote in apartheid South Africa. But having the right to vote isn't what constitutes apartheid. There are different definitions. The fact that there are 51 laws that will differentiate between Palestinians and Jewish Israelis and that will either privilege Jewish Israelis or subjugate the Palestinian citizens is what we should be paying attention to. What Israel does is it bifurcates Jewish nationality from Israeli citizenship so that if you are a Jewish national and an Israeli citizen, you have the full course of rights that will be available to you as a citizen and national. Whereas if you're just an Israeli citizen, you do not have access to that full panoply of rights. That is the primary distinction that makes citizenship, frankly, a, a second class status. So even having the right to vote doesn't mean that they have the rights to Jewish nationality, which are never going to be available to them. 
uh, I want to play a clip to you from a video made by Danny Ayalon, who's the former Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, former Israeli deputy foreign minister. He made this video trying to rebut claims uh, that Israel is an apartheid state. I just want to play a clip to you. Arabs serve as judges. An Arab judge even threw a Jewish president into jail. They share academic institutions, hospitals, transportation, beaches, and all facilities. They live all over the country. They've won national beauty contests and reality shows on Israeli TV. They are on Israel's national sports team. Therefore, it is not surprising that Frederick de Klerk, the South African leader who won a Nobel Peace Prize for ending the apartheid and knows a thing or two about it, said such a comparison is odious and unfair. Uh, Nora, what goes through your mind when you hear Israeli spokespersons make these arguments? I, I think it's crazy that they're citing de Klerk as, a, as, as an authority of what is and what is not <laughs> apartheid based on how the minority is being treated. I mean, it's one thing to say you're you're not as evil as us. It's another thing to say that these uh, that the Palestinians are free. Um, look, these are all cosmetic forms of multiculturalism and inclusion that are not tantamount to full rights. What he's trying to tell us is that because they get to have this nominal inclusion, that that somehow negates the structure of exclusion that Israel exercises, which is reserves the right of Israel to be a Jewish state. And if we don't even have to go very far. Danny Ayalon should read Israel's own law. The nation state law of July 2018 defines Israel as a Jewish state with the right of Jewish self-determination all over the state and only Jewish self-determination, and which yeah. makes settlement, which makes the creation of settlements a constitutional obligation. Respond to that. How does inclusion as being a judge or a beauty queen debunk self-determination? Yeah, they'd much rather talk about reality show winners. Um, Yusuf Munaya, the executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, who you and I both know, he's been a guest on this show. He tweeted this week, quote, if Netanyahu is done, and that is a big if, it will be very interesting to watch how U.S. liberal Zionists will continue to defend the status quo without Netanyahu to hide behind. He's right, isn't he? For a lot of U.S. liberals, both Jewish and non-Jewish, it's been easy to say that Israel's descent into illiberalism, into far-right nationalism, it's all the fault of Netanyahu and Likud. Yeah, I mean, this is this is definitely a, a way to assuage liberal guilt because Netanyahu is not is not the problem right now. This is Israel. What he represents is not the right, but is actually Israeli policy of settlement and expansion. The fact that neither party, no party, no party had a platform on what about Palestinians who are living under occupation? What about the siege on Gaza? What about the lack of equality of, of Palestinian citizens of Israel? So the fact that nobody is talking about tells us what we need to know about Israel. Netanyahu can go away, but we're still going to be faced with this problem. What the liberal Zionists will have is, you know, the ability to tell themselves, oh, but now we can do better, whereas Netanyahu was unable to uh, habilitate himself. But let the empirical evidence stand for itself. Blue and white has already said they want to bomb Gaza back to the Stone Age and that annexation was their idea. So we need to stop living in a fantasy land of trying to hold on to a dream and actually deal with the empirical yeah. evidence. And the truth is, is that because there is no cost, financial, economic, moral, or otherwise, um, to Israel and Israelis, there's just no imperative to be thinking about Palestinians, which makes imperative upon us to create that cost and to create the incentive yeah. through boycott, divestment, and sanctions. 
Allow me just a quick moment to thank patrons. I have some catching up to do, so I got plenty of them. Uh, Michael K, Shane M, Jeffrey D, Steve H, Michael O, I Am The Truth, probably not the real name, Rob R, Daniel B, Michael F, and Chris M. Thank you all so much for your continued support of the show. As for the rest of you, here's a bit of what you've been missing out on. In my most recent bonus episode, I, I even though I usually share additional clips like are in the main show, I, I skipped it this time because I had a back catalog of recommendations to share and discuss. I only pay for HBO for a couple of months a year, and th- that couple of months just ended, so I, I finished binging it basically a year's worth of HBO series recently, and so it was time to discuss all of what I had been uh, watching. First, why Watchmen is for everyone interested in exploring the legacy of racial justice in America, which should be all of you, not just comic book and superhero nerds. How the series Our Boys explores the element of structural power in the Israel-Palestine conflict, timely, and how the series Mrs. Fletcher subverts the traditional redemption narrative in really interesting ways and dealt with uh, checking one's privilege and learning about structural oppressions and all of those things, but in a really unique and interesting way uh, that, that I appreciated, even though I felt like I knew a lot of the lessons they were trying to teach, it's, you know, it still came across as interesting. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, advertising HBO by any stretch, but those happen to be HBO shows. And then there were others that I recommended, but you'll have to listen to find out. We could really use your help right now since we opted to not take advertisements from those who wanted to track as much of your data as possible and then cram in crappy pre-recorded ads into the show. So if you're interested in supporting our work and getting our bonus content, it's available for six bucks a month on Patreon. We have higher levels for those who can give more and a lower level that gives ad-free versions of the show without the bonus content for just two bucks a month because I appreciate any dollar amount you can afford. To sign up, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft, which is linked right in the show notes on your device and on our website. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash bestofleft. talk about American opinion polls. They're very interesting on the issue of Israel-Palestine. So we are often told by supporters of the Israeli occupation in Washington, D.C., especially Republicans, that the reason the United States backs Israel so blindly, gives it billions of dollars, uh, turns a blind eye when it massacres children in Gaza, is because American public opinion is behind Israel, because Americans want to support the, quote, only democracy in the Middle East, as it's often uh, sold, which is not actually true. Going back many, many years, if you look at the polling on this subject, most Americans, a majority or a plurality of Americans say they don't want the United States to take the side of Israel or the Palestinians. They want the United States to be what it claims to be, but of course is not. And that is an honest broker, an impartial outside force, uh, which it's never been, of course. And what's so interesting is about, I think it was about a year ago, uh, the University of Maryland, Shibli Talhami, who's a great academic and pollster, carried out some polling of Americans on the Middle East, which found that there was almost an even split between Americans on whether they support a two-state solution, as is, as is framed by the establishment. Uh, 36%, I think, of Americans uh, versus 
is a one-state solution, a, a democratic, binational, secular state in which uh, Palestinians and, and Jews all have, you know, one, one vote, one person, one vote, equal rights. And that was around 35%. It was almost even. It was a third of Americans were two-state, a third of Americans were one-state. And here's what's so interesting, Amy. When you tell Americans that there is no two-state solution, that option is gone, the vast majority, two out of three Americans say, we support one-state solution with equal rights for everyone. Because Americans, shock horror, like the idea of one person, one vote. That's what this country is supposed to be uh, built on. And they don't like the idea of saying, you know what, we're going to take a people and put them under occupation and disenfranchise them in perpetuity. And that's what this Kushner plan does. It basically says you're never getting anything else. This is what you get. Israel gets to annex what it's like, takes over whatever part of the West Bank it likes. And the Palestinians, no, they don't get any rights. What's so astonishing about this plan and, and, you know, Americans, I would argue, the average American would not support this idea that a Palestinian refugee uh, not only loses their status as a refugee under this plan forever, but Israel gets to veto Palestinian refugees from returning even to a Palestinian state. Israel, not just to Israel, forget, forget the right of return to Israel. Under this plan, if you look at the small print, they can't even return to a Palestinian state without an Israeli veto. So I think this is all a reminder once again that, you know, uh, Edward Said said it best back in 1978. He said, here in the United States and in the West, amongst establishment types, uh, the Palestinian person politically does not exist. They have been completely obliterated. And I think we saw that in the last 24 hours where you have a White House press conference at which no Palestinian spoke, a White House meeting with the Israeli leadership, but not with any members of the Palestinian leadership, and a plan put forward by the White House, uh, which had no Palestinian input whatsoever. It's the complete and utter erasure of the Palestinians uh, by the U.S. political establishment, by the U.S. administration. So, Phyllis, your assessment on this and, and what's going on? Well, this is not, whatever else it is, it is not an Israeli-Palestinian deal. This is a U.S.-Israeli deal. This <clears throat> meeting today is a meeting of the impeached and the indicted, if you will. Uh, I don't anticipate that anyone really thinks that peace had anything to do with this. This was about providing legal and political protection uh, to keep Trump in the White House and Bibi Netanyahu out of jail. Uh, and get both of them reelected in the meantime. So this was a, a thoroughly political uh, arrangement with domestic consequences in the U.S. and Israel far more important than anything that happens on the ground. I don't anticipate that there will be a significant change of anything on the ground. What it does is to consolidate and provide a U.S. imprimatur, U.S. legitimacy, U.S. official protection to Israel in its series of violations of international law, of human rights. Uh, and I think that what we're seeing is that this emerges in the context of a series of, of gifts that Trump has already provided uh, to Netanyahu. This is in the broader context, of course, of, of decades of a thoroughly pro-Israeli, anti-Palestinian uh, set of policies by the United States. This isn't new. Trump didn't reverse uh, a, uh, a supposedly even-handed uh, policy in US, the U.S. role in Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. There never was uh, an even-handed U.S. position. It was always 
uh, acting as Aaron David Miller said in his book, one of the longtime negotiators, who continues, as of even an hour ago, appearing on NPR as a continued expert in these things, despite mm. his 25 years of failure, along with Martin Indyk and the others, uh, to say that the U.S. acted as Israel's lawyer. That hasn't changed, except that it's become significantly more explicit under Trump. And the gifts that Trump has provided through his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, to the Israelis, and specifically to uh, Bibi Netanyahu and the right-wing, the far-right-wing coalition government, that include, just in these two and a half years that Trump has been in office, recognition of Jerusalem as the sole capital of, of Israel only, moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing Israeli occupation of the Syrian Golan Heights as somehow legitimate, uh, announcing that settlements suddenly are not in violation of international law, uh, ending the funding of UNRWA, the UN agency that provides support for Palestinian refugees throughout the region, cutting funding to all Palestinian humanitarian projects, including hospitals, closing the PLO office in Washington, uh, accepting the the Israeli the new nation state law in Israel that explicitly prevents equality. Uh, for Israeli citizens by saying that only Jews have the right of self-determination in their country. So the 20% of Israelis who happen to be Palestinians uh, are, are wiped out of the equation. Uh, they've supported, the Trump administration has supported anti-BDS legislation. Uh, Trump, of course, signed his executive order just a couple of weeks ago, uh, demanding that a thoroughly false definition of anti-Semitism uh, that supposed that basically equates criticism of Israel with being anti-Semitic uh, is now the, the the position of the Trump administration and the executive branch of the U.S. government. So we could go on and on. Those are the those are the biggest ones, uh, and that's all before the announcement of this new agreement that's been reached between the U.S. and Israel. What it probably includes, there have been leaks and there's sort of assumptions about what, what's likely to be in there, it probably includes the um, acceptance of Israeli annexation of the Jordan Valley first, which is about 30% of the West Bank. Uh, it's already functionally annexed because virtually the entire Jordan Valley has now been labeled a military, a closed military zone by the Israeli military, and most Palestinians, even those who own land there, are not allowed to enter, so it's already essentially annexed. It will probably include acceptance of Israeli sovereignty over all of the illegal settlements. It will include full Israeli control over all of Jerusalem, although perhaps some villages outside of Jerusalem, Abu Dis and others that have long been talked about by Israel as, oh, well, we can have a Palestinian capital in Abu Dis, and we'll call it Jerusalem. You know, it's sort of like saying we'll have a, a capital in in San Bernardino, and we'll call it Los Angeles. You know, it doesn't quite it doesn't quite work. Um, it will probably include uh, an acceptance of permanent Israeli security control of all of the West Bank. It will almost certainly do nothing about the fact that Gaza remains what the United Nations said four years ago that in 2020, which is now. Gaza would be uninhabitable, and Gaza will likely remain uninhabitable, uh, cut off from the West Bank, cut off from the outside world, under Israeli siege. Uh, some small economic bones will be thrown, some, something like the Maquiladora factories on the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, and crucially, I think one thing that is likely to be included is that there will be reference to 
this being the end of the conflict. And that's, it's very important language because what it references is not that this means the end of occupation or the end of apartheid, the end of inequality. Quite the contrary, it means the end to the right to resist. So that anyone, once an agreement like this is reached, although of course the Palestinians are not part of it, it means that there is no more complaining to be allowed, that this is now going forward what what exists. And anyone who raises objections is somehow outside of normal discourse, would be called a terrorist, presumably, and, and that there is no longer any uh, any legitimate way to, to, uh, to challenge this. So there will be no Palestinian rights. There, there was a, a statement yesterday from Trump where he said, well, there's no deal without the Palestinians, but if they don't sign, life goes on. The problem <laughs> is that for Palestinians, life doesn't always go on. People are dying from lack of medical care in Gaza, being shot on the on the Gaza uh, near the the Gaza Israeli fence by Israeli sharpshooters, uh, raids going on, the arrest of children in the West Bank. All of this is continuing. Uh, there will be certainly no Palestinian state, but more crucially, in some ways, there will be no Palestinian rights. Recently, U.S. foreign policy towards Israel-Palestine has become a matter of mainstream political debate in a way that it rarely was previously. Presidential candidates, such as Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, as well as Representatives Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, have brought the issue of how the U.S. should relate to Israel and Palestine to the forefront. Here are some recent examples of what Senators Sanders and Warren have said. Is the Palestinian people have a right to live in peace and security as well? And it is not, let me underline this because it will be misunderstood. It is not anti-Semitism to say that the Netanyahu government has been racist. I will welcome the Palestinian general delegation back to Washington. And I will reopen an American mission to the Palestinians in Jerusalem. I will make clear that in a two-state agreement, both parties should be able to have their capitals in Jerusalem. And here are examples of remarks Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib have made. All I can do as her granddaughter is help humanize her and the Palestinian people's plight. I know that when we can finally see them as deserving of human dignity, everyone who lives there will be able to live in peace. Fortunately, we in the United States have a constructive role to play. We give Israel more than $3 million in aid every year. This is predicated on their being an important ally in the region and the only democracy in the Middle East. But denying visit to duly elected members of Congress is not consistent with being an ally and denying millions of people freedom of movement or expression or self-determination is not consistent with being a democracy. 
Also, Trump's policies of recognizing the annexation of the Syrian Golan, cutting aid to Palestinians, of recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and moving the U.S. embassy, and most recently claiming that illegal colonies in the West Bank do not violate international law. These all show a change in U.S. policies that is also happening in the Republican Party. An article that was recently published in 972 magazine sheds light on the reasons for why the Israel-Palestine issue has become so central to U.S. politics. The article is titled, How Israel-Palestine Jumped to the Heart of U.S. Politics, written by Alex Kane. Joining me now to discuss his article is Alex Kane. He's a freelance journalist who writes on Israel-Palestine, civil liberties, Jewish communities in the U.S., and the war on terror. Thanks for joining us today, Alex. Thanks for having me. So in your article, you focus on the Democratic Party, and you talk about the events of recent years that altered the U.S.-Israel relationship, such as the Israeli invasion of Gaza, the sour relationship between Netanyahu and Obama, and so on. Give us a brief summary of how these and other events have changed the Democratic Party's approach toward Israel-Palestine. Yeah, so um, you know, this the sort of modern change begins, I think, with Operation Cast Lead in 2008-2009 when Israel bombed Gaza um, from the air and killed you know, 1,400 people, majority of them civilians. I think a lot of grassroots activists and progressives in the United States saw that and saw an Israel that was brutally bombing Palestinian civilians in Gaza. So that was one uh, start to how progressives and people who vote for the Democratic Party have begun to change their minds. Uh, instead of seeing Israel as a sort of democracy and a U.S. ally, they saw Israel as a overwhelming military force pummeling a civilian population that's under Israeli blockade. Uh, I think that was you saw that in a lot of, sort of demonstrations and protests over large protests around the country. Um, for the 22 days that Israel bombed Gaza during Operation Cast Lead. But the, the sort of high politics of that really heated up when Barack Obama came into office. Of course, in the beginning, we had Obama attempting to forge a new path in the Middle East with his uh, speech in Cairo, in which he decried, yes, Palestinian violence, but also Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank and Jerusalem. But uh, the high water mark of this clash between Obama and Netanyahu was, of course, the Iran deal. This was President Obama's signature foreign policy move, normalizing or attempting to begin to normalize relations between the United States and Iran with a deal that would remove U.S. sanctions in return for allowing Iran uh, into, uh, integration into the world economy as long as they give up their nuclear energy program. Netanyahu, of course, was invited to Congress by the Republican Party to torpedo that deal, and it failed. But uh, the relationship between Obama and Netanyahu at that point was incredibly to toxic, even though Obama, uh, a year later, gave Netanyahu $38 billion in U.S. weapons over the next 10 years, an agreement that is still being played out today. The relationship, the personal relationship, trickled down to the grassroots of the Democratic Party, and they began, they began to see Netanyahu as just another Republican who was essentially campaigning for Republican control. Now, actually, I want to turn exactly to the Republican Party, uh, which uh, you have also in your article identified as a party of older and wealthier voters. 
Uh, but uh, this party itself actually has also not remained static with regard to policies towards Israel-Palestine, as Trump's own policies show. Talk to us about why and how the Republicans pol Republican Party's policies have changed. Yeah, so, um, you know, interestingly, I think, I think a lot of people forget that President you know, Ronald Reagan suspended uh, exports of U.S. munitions when Israel invaded Lebanon. And George H.W. Bush cut off what are called loan guarantees to Israel because Israel kept building settlements at a time when uh, the first President Bush tried to jumpstart a peace process between Israel and the Palestinians and eventually, of course, did in the early 1990s. Um, so that was a sort of uh, Republican foreign policy that was more even-handed, I guess you could say. Uh, even though, of course, overwhelmingly pro-Israel, but still willing to um, uh, sort of impose some consequences on Israeli governments that take steps that were not in line with U.S. foreign policy, um, which was inching towards pushing the Palestine Liberation Organization and the Israeli government to negotiate towards an eventual two-state solution where an pa independent Palestinian state would be born. Today, the party has radically shifted to the right on Israel. Um, a big part of that, of course, is the, um, even the white evangelical Christian vote um, becoming more and more important to how the Republican Party wins elections. And of course, you have uh, somewhat of a shift in the Jewish community, the right wing of the Jewish community, a minority of the Jewish community, to be sure, but people like Sheldon Adelson, uh, Paul Singer, these are right-wing members of the Jewish community who are incredibly hawkish on Israel. And so you see these both right, the, the right-wing elements of the Jewish community um, giving a lot of donations to the Republican Party and the white Christian evangelicals giving a lot of votes. And of course, white Christian evangelicals believe that Israel uh, has been blessed by God, that it is sort of a religious mandate to support Israel and of course to support Israeli settlements in the biblical heartland uh, which is what Christian evangelicals and uh, Jewish settlers call Judea and Samaria, or as we, as you know, non-evangelicals uh, would say, uh, the occupied West Bank. Actually, I want to turn to the progressive Jewish communities in the U.S. Uh, you wrote uh, that uh, you wrote about Jewish Voices for Peace, uh, which is clearly on the side of BDS and of ending U.S. aid to Israel. Uh, do you uh, also see shifts in other Jewish American groups in their stance towards uh, Israel-Palestine, for example, such as J Street? Yeah, so uh, Netanyahu is also a big part of this shift. So, you know, uh, I think it's fair to say the, the majority of American Jews were brought up to see Israel as a haven for Jews, particularly, of course, after the Holocaust, um, when Jews were, were persecuted and a genocide was committed against them and, 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 and Israel was seen as a haven for them, a safe place and a democracy that was a key ally of the United States. So, you know, this alliance between the American Jewish community and Israel uh, really intensified after 1967 when Israel was seen as a sort of underdog that miraculously um, conquered the invading Arab armies. The real history is more complicated than that, but this is how American Jews saw it. And it cemented a bond between American Jews who are overwhelmingly liberal and vote in the Democratic Party and Israel, which is where you see in part the Democratic Party's consensus on Israel come from. But as 
Israel shifted to the right, particularly in the Netanyahu era, as Netanyahu became more belligerent towards Palestinians, building Israeli settlements, uh, uh, scuttling any chance of an independent Palestinian state, and fear-mongering over Iran to the point where he would join forces with the Republican Party and essentially spit in the face of most American Jews who, are, who vote Democrat, this relationship began to shift. Today, we see that the majority of American Jews do not believe Israel should be building settlements in the occupied West Bank, do not believe Israel should um, be, be, be sort of uh, essentially taking policies that uh, scuttle any chance of an independent Palestinian state. They still, I think the majority of, Jew, uh, of American Jews who are liberal or mainly the Democratic Party still see Israel as an ally and as an important country in the world. And that's where you get that that kind of view is, is most expressed in sort of J Street, who supports Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, but wants the U.S. to criticize Israel when it does things like build settlements or take hawkish positions on Iran that may increase tensions in the region. But you also have a younger um, flank of Jews like Jewish Voice for Peace and, if not now, who are um, really, uh, they're not afraid to criticize Israel. They're, you know, in, in, in Jewish Voice for Peace, of course, they're the one Jewish group that endorses boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which remains incredibly controversial within the establishment Jewish community. And then you have If Not Now, um, which was founded by former members of J Street, of J Street U, and they saw an opportunity to take direct action against American Jewish institutions that are complicit in Israel's occupation. And so you, you have uh, a number of different blocks within the American Jewish community. J Street, if not now, JDP, they're all different, but I would say they're all united in seeking to change the contours of the U.S. relationship with Israel. In a sharp reversal of more than 40 years of U.S. policy, the Trump administration has announced it no longer views Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank to be a violation of international law. In 1978, the State Department issued a legal opinion stating that settlements were, quote, inconsistent with international law, and every administration, Democratic and Republican, has upheld that. On Monday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced a reversal to the U.S. position. The establishment of Israeli civilian settlements in the West Bank is not, per se, inconsistent with international law. This announcement puts the U.S. at odds with the international community. In 2016, a U.N. resolution declared the settlements a flagrant violation of international law. Israel's embattled prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, welcomed Pompeo's announcement as a historic day for Israel. But Palestinian chief negotiator Saab Barakat condemned the U.S. decision. Israeli colonial settlements in the occupied Palestinian territories, including East Jerusalem, are not only illegal under international law, they are war crimes. And the statement of Mr. Pompeo, the Secretary of State of the United States, is absolutely uh, rejected and must be condemned. 
Soon after Mike Pompeo announced the new U.S. policy, the U.S. Embassy in Israel issued a travel warning to Americans in Jerusalem, the West Bank and Gaza. We're joined now by Noura Erekat, Palestinian human rights attorney and legal scholar, assistant professor at Rutgers University. Her latest book, Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. This is an abrupt reversal, Noura Erekat. Can you talk about the significance of it? I would actually temper that a little bit. This is not necessarily a reversal um, in U.S. policy, only in its stated policy. For 50, for more than five decades since 1967, all U.S. administrations have talked out of both sides of their mouth. On the one hand, they have condemned settlements as counterproductive to peace and as a contravention of international law, and on the other hand, have provided Israel with the unequivocal diplomatic, military, and financial aid in or order to entrench their settlements. Even the Obama administration, as it was upstairs, on U.N. Uh, Security Council Resolution 2334 condemning the settlements as a flagrant violation has been part of the problem. They, they issued that abstention only two weeks before they left office. Simultaneously, the U Obama administration increased aid from $3 billion to $3.8 billion a year. And in 2012, that same administration used its first veto at the Security Council to condemn um, a resolution, a U.N. Security Council resolution uh, condemning settlements using exact U.S. foreign policy language on settlements. So what we're seeing now is not a sharp reversal of U.S. foreign policy on the question of settlements and Palestine, but instead the culmination of it. For us to, to blame this on Trump is basically to exculpate ourselves and to create a revisionist history. Instead, we should be accountable and actually take responsibility for how we have been part of this problem. And could you talk about the timing of this announcement in the midst of an essential stalemate in Israel in terms of a new government? And uh, Benny Gantz has a deadline uh, uh, this week of forming a new government or there may or Israel may be forced to a third election yeah, this is what's so tragic about all of this. What we're talking about right now in the West Bank is about 700,000 settlers living in the midst of a population of 3 million Palestinians who, because of those 700,000 settlers who are li living on exclusive colonial settlements surrounded by military and civilian Israeli infrastructure, cuts up Palestinian life into 20 non-contiguous Bantustans where they can't reach one another. We're talking about the subjugation of a Palestinian population at the whim of these illegal colonial settlements. And now we're seeing this discussion, we're seeing the U.S. recognize this as not a violation of international law, which actually has no basis because they can't change uh, that status. They can only be in violation of it. But with a tragic part, is that the U.S. administration is doing this in order to support Netanyahu in his own bid to consolidate power in Israel. Palestinians are pawns are pawns to be moved around in order to shape U.S. domestic policy. And the other thing that should be highlighted is, though, although Netanyahu, who represents the right, is celebrating this as a culmination of his own vision, Benny Gantz and the Blue and White Party supports it and welcomes the Trump administration announcement as well. There is no daylight between the so-called Israeli left and the so-called Israeli light. What we're seeing is a consolidation of their settler colonial takings. We want to frame this as a contravention of the peace process and not acknowledge 
acknowledging the fact that what's ongoing is a violation of human rights, the entrenchment of an apartheid regime, and that the reversion to the peace process is precisely the problem. It was the Oslo Accords that put settlements on the back burner and made it part of the final status negotiations that we're not getting to. And so that what we're seeing now in terms of what the U.S. administration is doing is forcing Palestinians to accept every new incremental territorial taking as new facts on the ground that are then presented to Palestinian negotiators who have to accept those facts on the ground, which are war crimes, as previously stated. And when the Palestinians protest, they are told that they are the obstacle to peace. So the reversion to the peace process here, the reversion to the U.S. status quo ante on how to handle the situation, is the reversion into a straight dead end and back to where we are. We have to think about this radically anew about how to transcend the situation. This isn't about the peace process. This isn't about two states. These are about flagrant human rights violations. We are witnessing the entrenchment of an apartheid regime and the U.S. at the helm of that process. Interestingly, what Netanyahu has done that's been useful, I don't know if you agree with this view, for all his odiousness and his repressive rule, uh, he has actually been a PR disaster for Israel, for the state of Israel as a whole, regardless of where you are on the Israeli political spectrum. Because for years, the Israelis were able to say the occupation is temporary, there's a two-state solution around the corner, the peace process goes on. Netanyahu comes along and says, nope, no Palestinian state on my watch, I'm going to annex parts of the West Bank. So the occupation isn't temporary, it's permanent. And if it's permanent, then it's definitely apartheid. You know, I think what people have to deal with is the fact that labor number labor might have at some point been opposed to the permanence of civilian settlements as a matter of religious mandate and are not attached to the territories for its religious significance in terms of, you know, defining it as Judea and Somalia and part of a greater Israel. But labor is just as committed to ensuring that there is no Palestinian state. And when you're referring to labor versus Likud in Israel, I can't help but think it mirrors very you know, clearly the discussion in the US between the Democrats and the Republicans when it comes to Israel uh, and the limits to which either party will go to really take a stand. What do you make of the US political scene right now, a year out from the presidential election, uh, vis-a-vis the Palestinians? Are you optimistic? Because you have presidential candidates like Bernie Sanders for the first time saying they're willing to make US aid to Israel conditional on certain human rights issues. You have even someone like Pete Buttigieg, very pro-Israeli, saying he would not allow uh, his presidency to fund the annexation of any part of the West Bank. You have Elizabeth Warren and Beto O'Rourke calling Netanyahu a racist. I've never heard a, uh, you know leading US politicians call the Prime Minister of Israel a racist. You have two members of Congress, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, openly backing the BDS movement, the boycott, sanctions and divestment movement. Is this a turning point, Nora, in American politics or is it too soon to tell? No, I absolutely think that what we're seeing in American politics and certainly in American rhetoric and in American media is a sea change to where we were on this question, where it was a, t- a complete, it's still a taboo and there's still risk in breaking it, but not in the way that it was formidable in the past. That said, it doesn't represent or mirror at all the situation on the ground in Palestine, which is deteriorating day by day at an 
exponential rate. So yes, there has been change within the American scene, which I'm actually really grateful for, even for the fact that Israel is going to be a 2020 issue. We can't say Palestinian struggle for freedom. That's not how they define it. It's really about Israel, right? We're always in the shadow of Israel. But that Israel will even be subject to a debate um, represents a movement victory of the sacrifices that grassroots activists have been making for decades in the United States. So I'm hoping that this is the beginning of a much more honest conversation where Palestine is part of a much larger and broader framework in the Middle East and the lives of millions of people who have become expendable um, in the eyes of, of most Americans because we've become so desensitized to the numbers of death and destruction there as a result of endless wars. And Nora, last question. As someone who is Palestinian-American, who I assume speaks regularly to Palestinian family members and friends back in Israel in the occupied territories, how do you stay optimistic in these dark times? One, we have no choice. The only other choice is to surrender and give up, and no humans have ever done that. But number two, one of the primary, and people ask me this question, my primary sources of hope is to look at the 2 million Palestinians in the Gaza Strip who have now participated in the 73rd consecutive week of the Gaza March of Return, of marching to this militarized perimeter where they are held in an open-air prison at the sure risk of being shot to be killed, where nobody is paying attention to them, and yet they have remained resilient, obstinate, consistent and have made their demands have been clear, which is an end to the siege, the right to return and their freedom. If Palestinians in Gaza who are living under these dire conditions are not willing to give up and are provide and are moving through a politics of hope, I am in no place and no place and no right to say that I'm going to be cynical and give up. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, explaining the announcement of the quote-unquote peace plan. Counterspin broke down some of the peace plan and the media's framing of it. Deconstructed discussed last year's election in Israel and corrected the record about the non-existence of a true left-wing opposition party. Democracy Now! explained the shifting opinion polls in the U.S. about support for Israel. Sojourner Truth Radio discussed more of the details about the plan and emphasized the danger of attempting to declare the conflict over, thereby delegitimizing any further protest. The Real News focused on the role of Israel in U.S. politics and how things are shifting. Democracy Now! reported on last year's U.S. reversal of official policy about the illegal settlements in Israel and Palestine. And finally, we just heard Deconstructed with further conversation and analysis about the role of Israel politics in American politics. Members will be hearing a whole hodgepodge of additional content this week. I've got bonus clips about international racism and the politics of trade deals. I have thoughts from a documentary I watched recently that helps draw the parallels between our current trade war with China and the opium wars. And who knows anything about opium wars except history majors? I certainly didn't, so I learned that history, and it was shockingly similar to what's going on today. And I read a story recently 
about how game theory has more or less proven that there is a rule better than the golden rule. Who would have thought? So all of that's in the bonus content this week. To hear that and all of our bonus content every week, which includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now we would usually be hearing from you, but uh, I'm, we're going to hear from uh, John, but he wrote in instead of uh, calling. And this is a continuation of the conversation that sort of began in the previous episode. We had a caller who was, uh, you know, after learning about all of the effort that Bernie Sanders put into getting Hillary Clinton elected, which, to be fair, um, goes against the mainstream narrative of how the 2016 election went down. So a lot of people are unaware of how much work Bernie did to get Hillary elected. Uh, the caller called in and was still skeptical. It was trying to shake that notion that, well, if he worked so hard, why don't we know that? Did he, you know, maybe he had a lot of campaign events, but he didn't really do a good job of selling a Clinton presidency to his supporters. And so that's why they, you know, didn't carry her to victory. So to continue that conversation, I wanted to bring in John Kay, who has he's been a longtime listener, longtime supporter. He's a member of the show. We're on very good terms. Uh, he's very supportive. But last year, just a little more than a year ago, longtime Listeners may remember this because it you know, got brought up and discussed at the time. John had this to say as a Clinton supporter. He was explaining his thoughts about the Clinton-Bernie divide and, and where some of the uh, some of the feelings about all of that really come from. So just to read a bit of what John had to say, John writes a year ago. Many Bernie supporters, women as well as men, just fail to recognize the subtle and sometimes blatant sexism existent in the campaign and how raw it has left many Clinton supporters feeling, myself included. It is particularly hard, and maybe this is just my friends, to listen to injured party rants on the behalf of Bernie. My opinion is that Bernie's support primarily sprung from anti-Clinton rather than pro-progressivism sentiments, not all of them conscious. And my proof of this is a wager that Bernie's support will shrink to single digits by February 2020, and that the positions of the eventual nominee will be indistinguishable from those of Hillary Clinton. So I took him up on that. We had a little chat and talked about it on the show. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to mark my calendar and we're going to find out how this bet uh, turns out. As we all know, Bernie's in first place. He's polling well above 20%, not in the single digits, as, as John was uh, guessing and predicting. But the point of the conversation was about a fundamental disconnect and disagreement about whether Bernie's support was genuine. Was it just sexism because you had a choice basically between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders? And if you went for Bernie Sanders, how much of that was incentivized by sexism, either overt or subconscious? And I argued on the other side, 
I think Bernie will have lots of support come 2020 because the support for progressive policies and ideas is genuine. That's certainly why I supported Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton in the primaries uh, last time. And so I thought, okay, cool. Like this will be an interesting way to find out. And I, I think it's, it's a good continuation from the conversation in the last episode because it tests these assumptions we have about what really happened in 2016. And I am on the side of the debate arguing that the mainstream narrative of what went down in 2016 is not accurate. The idea that Bernie's support was primarily based on sexism or just primarily anti-Clintonism, which you could blame on you know decades of right-wing anti-Hillary Clinton propaganda that seeps into the progressive wing of the party as well. But you, you could say, okay, it, it's either genuine support for Bernie or it's not really Bernie. It's just that they hate Clinton. Well, okay. So, you know, and, and as I said, John and I are on good terms. He has already commented, yes, I definitely have to eat crow on, on that prediction. Bernie's polling at 22.7% as of, uh, sorry, as of February 1st, according to Real Clear Politics. And, and he goes on to say that, um, knowing ahead of time that he was going to lose the bet, he, he, um, upped his subscription amount. He was already a member, but he, he chipped in a little bit more, which was very nice and not necessary because it was just a, a friendly bet. So it's good that we can test that theory, test the theory of, is the Bernie support from 2016 genuine? Is it reasonable to s suspect that it is still genuine, seeing that it is continuing? And testing uh, the, you know, the theory we were discussing in the last episode about, you know, did he really try to get Clinton elected? You know, is he is he a spoiler character? Did he come along and ruin everything for the Democrats, you know, come into our house and mess up all the furniture and then leave the mess? Or did he come in, try to make the argument for his policies, just like literally every single candidate would do in any election ever? And then after the primaries were over, work as hard as he could to get the ultimate nominee elected. Well, it turns out the evidence shows that he did do that. He worked harder than the previous candidate did in the previous election. It just happened to be Hillary Clinton in that case and her support of Barack Obama. And so I am hoping that with these conversations, we can put this conversation to rest and at least the people listening to this show can know the truth of what happened in 2016 and why it happened and the genuine you know feelings of support for Bernie that were there and that it although we should all readily admit that sexism is inherent in everyone and really does infuse the way we think about the world it doesn't mean that support for Bernie was illusory and based entirely on sexism. So to, to wrap up, I, I want to share something that John said at the end of this message from this year, talking about, okay, where do we go from here, basically, now that he realizes, okay, su support for Bernie is real, so now what do we do about it? And he says, 
My advice to Bernie supporters is to be gracious, not argumentative, to other progressives. You are winning. Take in a little unwarranted criticism and anger and make others feel good about supporting Bernie over, for example, Warren. Always speak highly of Warren and other faltering candidates and be careful how you frame things. And so I, I now I just want to um, throw in one quick bonus clip I have for you. It's from the Young Turks. And before you scoff or sigh heavily, I know that the Young Turks are not famous for being gracious. They have come out and overtly uh, supported Bernie. I mean, they they have endorsed him. That is what they're all about. And, and, and they're not great at being friendly to Clinton supporters. So it is actually for that reason that I want to share this clip. So th- this is a, a recent clip talking not about Clinton supporters, but Buttigieg supporters. And I think there's probably a lot of crossover, but but you'll you'll see the connections that I'm making when you hear the clip. And the point of the clip is that we really do see the structural reasons why either Clinton or possibly Buttigieg supporters perceive these elections the way they perceive them. I certainly have a different perspective, but I'm coming from a very different angle and I have a different set of information. I, I, I have different sources of information that help shape my perspective. And and so let, let's hear this clip and uh, it'll all make sense. She got a chance to talk to some of the people in attendance and she said a lot of them were undecided, but she did talk to one man about why he doesn't like Bernie Sanders. Take a look at that. I support Pete. Uh, my biggest issue with Bernie is not so much Bernie, but Bernie's supporters as being rigid. And from what we saw in the 2016 election, when he didn't get the nomination, his supporters then turned and then either didn't vote or they voted for for Trump. Statistically, more Hillary Clinton supporters from 2008 voted for McCain than Bernie supporters did for Trump. Does that change your view at all? No. So, like, what I... what struck me about that is to say that Bernie supporters are rigid and implying that they will not budge no matter what kind of evidence you throw at them. Yeah. She very gent like that's what's great about Emma's videos is she's just like here's a fact. What do you think of it? Not so calm. I mean a lot of people uh criticize those who have endorsed Bernie Sanders for being so aggressive but like she just says here's a fact and his response is a very flat rigid one would say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So look, I watched all the videos. I actually thought that the Buttigieg supporters were perfectly pleasant people. And and some of them are just more moderate. I, again, I don't begrudge it at all. Uh, and even that guy, so he happens to be wrong. And then when he presented with a fact, and by the way, the full fact is that uh, twice as many Hillary Clinton supporters uh, did not vote for Obama as Bernie Sanders supporters not voting for Hillary Clinton. In fact, uh, a lot of the Bernie supporters were actually already independents or Republicans that had switched to vote for Bernie in the primaries and went back to the Republican Party. He could have brought those people in if he was a candidate. Whereas Hillary supporters are almost all Democrats and voted for McCain. Okay, so those are the facts and you can look it up. The Washington Post has written about it, you know, and so that's the reality. But even that guy don't regret that much. You know why? Because he doesn't watch TYT. 
No, I'm serious. And he didn't happen to cast out one article in the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. So if you if you watch cable news, how the hell would you know what the reality is? So you know, on cable news, they say they've said it a million times that Bernie Sanders supporters betrayed Hillary Clinton, and Bernie Sanders did likewise. When he, in fact he did 39 rallies for her. In fact, he cut the number of people who normally don't vote for the nominee in half, yeah. right? He did all those things, but you, how would that guy know? How would that poor guy know? So by the way, tell everybody watch CYT because you get the real facts. But if you watch cable news, you'll get alternative facts. Today on, on MSNBC, an anchor said that Bernie Sanders has no support with minorities. In fact, he's the number one candidate in America with support for minorities. It's the exact opposite of what's true. So if that guy or any other Buttigieg supporter heard that, they'd be like, well, I don't like that Bernie doesn't have any support with minorities, even though it's the exact opposite of what's true. So let me wrap it up this way. I I feel like for years now, 10 years or more since the Republican Party and conservatives in in general have seemed to have gone so far off the cliff, like that's kind of when there's this divergence of facts and and they have just begun to live in their own world and we can't have arguments on facts anymore and and so i feel like for that amount of time 10 15 years at least you know maybe longer the left has been lamenting this loss of ability to argue over facts not to agree on things but to agree on the facts and then disagree about what to do about it that's how politics is supposed to work and i feel like that's sort of happening now to a worrying degree within the left, within the Democratic Party. So I would say that if the reality were what Clinton supporters think it is, I would think that they have an extremely valid concern if Bernie support or you know support for Bernie was actually only based on sexism and not for his policies, that would be incredibly worrying. If his voters were so strident and rigid that they would ultimately refuse to vote for the eventual nominee, I don't really see what that has to do with Bernie as much as Clinton supporters seem to think that has to do with Bernie. But I admit that it's a concern. If he couldn't attract voters of color, that would be extremely concerning within the Democratic Party. But since none of those things are true, well, then we have to get to the point where we can get back to agreeing on facts and disagreeing about what to do about it. it like the, the most ridiculous example of this is an uh, old guy I knew years and years ago, one of my first jobs, very nice guy, very religious And he didn't believe in evolution. And he was like, I mean, how are you going to convince me that evolution is true? Scientists are going around saying that because a giraffe couldn't reach the leaves on the tall trees, it decided to grow its neck longer. Like, that's ridiculous. You're never going to convince me of that. That is what I think of when I think of arguments like this, where the premise is so fundamentally flawed that I can't help but think, well, you know, if your perception of the argument were true, well, then I'd agree with you. But the fact is you're so far off, you're actually proving either your your ignorance 
or just that you have been misinformed, you have been misled, and that you're arguing against a ghost. You are arguing against something that is not real. It doesn't exist in reality. And that's what these, whether they be Clinton of 2016 or Buttigieg of 2020 or whoever else who has these misconceptions about Bernie and his supporters and what they are likely to do, if your premise were correct, I may agree with you and be on your side about your concerns. But please get your premise correct. But that said, we understand. We understand how and why you have been misled. The media has not been telling the story that it needs to have been telling for all these years. So, of course, millions of people would have been misled on that because they don't all listen to podcasts to get their political news. But we will continue to do our best and you'll you can get the information from here and then hopefully spread it far and wide through your own networks. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen so coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com As you may have heard, Trump's been on quite a tear offering pardons or commuting sentences. And then, of course, even tweeting about uh, whichever corrupt friends of his should be getting lighter sentences than the prosecutors were going for. Well, at Liberix has responded with some insight into Bill Barr's perspective on all this. The president's causing me stress. Bill Barr has complained to the press. I spend all my time concealing his crime, and all that he does is confess. Confess.